Our scripture reading this morning comes from Philippians 1, 12 through 30. This can be found on page 1,826 in your pew Bibles. Now I want you to know, brothers, that what has happened to me has really served to advance the gospel. As a result, it has become clear throughout the whole palace guard and to everyone else that I am in chains for Christ. Because of my chains, most of the brothers in the Lord have been encouraged to speak the word of God more courageously and fearlessly. It is true that some preach Christ out of envy and rivalry, but others out of goodwill. The latter do so in love, knowing that I am put here for the defense of the gospel. The former preach Christ out of selfish ambition, not sincerely, supposing that they can stir up trouble for me while I am in chains. But what does it matter? The important thing is that in every way, whether from false motives or true, Christ is preached. And because of this, I rejoice. Yes, and I will continue to rejoice, for I know that through your prayers and the help given by the Spirit of Jesus Christ, what has happened to me will turn out for my deliverance. I eagerly expect and hope that I will in no way be ashamed, but will have sufficient courage so that now, as always, Christ will be exalted in my body, whether by life or by death. For to me, to live is Christ, and to die is gain. If I am to go on living in the body, this will mean fruitful labor for me. Yet what shall I choose? I do not know. I am torn between the two. I desire to depart and be with Christ, which is better by far. But it is more necessary for you that I remain in the body. Convinced of this, I know that I will remain, and I will continue with all of you for your progress and joy in the faith, so that through my being with you again, your joy in Christ Jesus will overflow on account of me. Whatever happens, conduct yourselves in a manner worthy of the gospel of Christ. Then, whether I come and see you or only hear about you in my absence, I will know that you stand firm in one spirit contending as one man for the faith of the gospel without being frightened in any way by those who oppose you. This is a sign to them that they will be destroyed, but that you will be saved, and that by God. For it has been granted to you on behalf of Christ not only to believe on him, but also to suffer for him, since you are going through the same struggle you saw I had, and now hear that I still have. The word of the Lord. Thank you, John, and I'd encourage, uh, encourage you to keep your Bibles open this morning. We'll be referring uh, to the text today, as we often do. So we're in the second uh, part of a series on Paul's letter to the Philippians. And uh, chapter 1, we'll be looking particularly at those latter verses that John read this morning. Um, verse 27 to the end. And the reason we're doing that is because the letter to the Philippians is full of um, um, sort of these big statements of the faith, texts that, you know, if you've grown up in the church, you remember, you hear repeated again and again. Um, We looked at one of them uh, last week in passing, he who began a good work in you will carry it on to completion This week you heard John say Paul's words, you know, to live is Christ, to die is gain. Those are things that, 
most of us in the church have heard, right? And, and that's the tendency, I think, for us as we're reading through Philippians is sort of just to jump from one big phrase to the next and maybe to miss what's really going on um, in this letter. So <clears throat> this morning, we're going to look at some of the in-between stuff. And um, New Testament scholar Tom Wright said that Paul's letter to the Philippians is really all about partnership. Partnership, that word partnership. It's a word that Paul uses again and again in Philippians. It comes up some five times, at least in that word, but the, the idea of partnership comes up even more often. We looked at a couple of those last Sunday. In verse 5 of chapter 1, Paul refers to his partnership with the Philippians in the gospel. And then in verse 7, he mentions their partnership together in God's grace. Now, since those partnerships presumably also include us today, um, what I'd like to do is explore a bit further what those partnerships are all about. And I'd also like us to kind of ask ourselves the question, so do I consider myself a partner in this? Am I a partner along with Paul, along with the Philippians? So first, what does it mean to be partners in the gospel? This is one of the, the broad categories that Paul gives us in chapter 1. And it means a couple of things. Um, I think the easiest or the first thing that comes to mind is we're partners in, God, in the gospel in terms of belief, right? Paul and the Philippians shared a common belief in the gospel of Jesus Christ and the power of that gospel to save them from their sins. We talked about this last week. It's a power that allows us to believe that we will stand before Christ on the last day. We will stand in that judgment and, um, and we will be affirmed at that time to be the people of Christ. So we have a partnership in the gospel in terms of belief. We also have a partnership in terms of the proclamation of that gospel. And we, we mentioned this last week as well, that the Philippians actually partnered with Paul to make sure that the gospel continued to be proclaimed, that, that he as an apostle could continue to do his work to plant churches. Now, why is that? Well, Paul was, we believe, we think to the best of our knowledge, he was in a Roman prison at this time when he writes this letter. And um, Roman prisons weren't so much like the prisons we think of today. Uh, the Roman government didn't provide three squares a day for everyone inside. Rather, you could not survive in prison unless someone from the outside was taking care of you and providing for you. And we find in the letter here that it was the Philippians who were taking care of all of Paul's needs in that way. They provided him with food and water and companionship and whatever, whatever else that he needed. You'll read about that later in the person of Epaphroditus who was sent by the Philippian church to provide for Paul so that the proclamation of the gospel could continue. And we've continued that kind of pattern in the church even today, right? We have missionaries that, that we support, that we try to provide for all of their needs so that churches may continue to be planted, the gospel may continue to spread. We are partners in the proclamation of the gospel. In verse 27, though, you see another side even to this partnership, and that's a partnership in living the gospel, 
living the gospel. Paul is living out the gospel in Philippi, and, and he's calling the Philippians to live out the gospel as well. Conduct yourselves in a manner worthy of the gospel of Christ, he says. Here is where we also add another concept that's a strong concept in Philippians, and that is the concept of citizenship, okay? Citizenship. The, the Greek word that Paul uses here when he says conduct yourselves in a manner worthy, um, it's, it's a word that loses something in translation, okay? The Greek word is actually the word politawistha, and you might hear in that word the word polis or politics. And I have to apologize here because lately, every time I bring up the Greek, I think of that film, the old film, My Big Fat Greek Wedding. And I, for some reason, I think it was the father in that film, somebody would say a word and he would say, oh, that word has a Greek origin. And, and he would go on and talk all about the Greek origin of that word. That's what I feel like lately when I do this. Um, but this is the word, politawistha, and it, it, it comes, it, it's part of the polis or the politic. It's about the city, it's about the state and life in the city, okay? And the word basically means to live as a citizen, to live as a citizen. So Paul is calling these people to live as citizens, to live out their citizenship. But if you, re if you recall your, your history, right, the Greek society um, in Greek society, the polis itself was kind of a partnership, right? Um, you did everything in cooperation. You couldn't just think about yourself. You were supposed to live for the well-being of everyone in the polis. Um, and furthermore, to be a citizen meant that you had rights and privileges, but you also had duties and responsibilities that you were supposed to fulfill. Now, with that in mind, and, and Paul bringing up this word about citizenship, we have to remember again to whom it is that Paul is writing here. Philippi is a place that's filled with former soldiers, retired soldiers, right? Retired military people. And these are people who understand citizenship, okay? In many cases, they have risked their lives to become citizens, Many of these people were probably slaves to begin with and joined the Roman military so that they could be granted citizenship when they had fulfilled their duty. And then on top of that, they were granted their retirement benefits in Philippi. They were given land. Um, they were given a way to make a living. It was, it was an incredible life for them as opposed to how it began. And so these were people who were invested in their citizenship. They were loyal to Caesar, who had given them their citizenship. They were loyal to Rome. Now, Paul says that they must be living life not as citizens loyal to Rome, but what he's saying here is they need to be living their lives as citizens loyal to heaven. Their citizenship really lies in heaven, and therefore they have to be loyal to Christ. The word in the Roman Empire, the word in Philippi, is that Caesar is Lord. The word in the Gospel is that Jesus is Lord. And that's what Paul is calling them to hear. He says, live in a manner worthy of the Gospel of Christ. Live your lives loyal to Jesus Christ and loyal to the things of heaven. 
Now, what does that look like? Well, Paul says there are also responsibilities for citizens of heaven. He goes on, right? I think it's verse 27. Stand firm, he says. Stand firm in one spirit. That word stand firm, it's a military term. Again, bringing to mind soldiers who refused to leave their posts regardless of the conditions around them. Regardless of what was going on, they stand firm. The next word, contending as one man for the faith. It's another military term. It's also an athletic term. But it means to struggle side by side with someone for the same purpose. Okay, and again, you think of the Roman military, there, there's evidence even that some of their shields could be locked together. And so as they went to battle, they were, they were forced to be near one another, to be next to one another, working in unison in, in the battle, striving for the same purpose. As I said, it's also an athletic term, so it brings to my mind at least Olympic rowing teams, right? You got nine people in a boat all going across the lake or down the river, each one with one oar, and they're pulling at that oar. They've got to be in perfect sync, in perfect unison with each other. That's what this, that's what this word is all about. And Paul says that citizens of heaven need to live in this way. They stand firm, in other words, they don't compromise with error. They remain loyal to Jesus in all things. And they also strive together for the faith. Okay? They work as one person to advance the gospel. Now, make sure that you hear what, what we just said. Okay? The struggle for citizens of heaven is not just a struggle against something. It's not just about standing firm. It's also the struggle for something. It's striving to achieve something as one body together, all having the same purpose, all working in unison for the same goal. That's the purpose of our unity. It's not just so that we can have someone to smile at when we come into church. We are all working together toward the same goal and that goal is spreading the good news of the gospel it's advancing the gospel so this is the partnership in the gospel partnership in the gospel it's partnership in belief it's partnership in proclamation but it's partnership in living out the gospel as well and living it right here and now right living it in philippi living it in milwaukee living it in edgerton but living it as citizens of heaven, first and foremost. And really, that's what baptism is all about as well, right? When you are baptized, as these three were this morning, you are marked, first and foremost, as a citizen of heaven. Okay? Our loyalty is to Jesus, and it's a public loyalty. We are the people of Jesus. We live under his lordship. And that lordship has to manifest itself in all of our loyalties. <clears throat> so we're partners in the gospel. But Paul also talks about this being partners in God's grace. Okay? And this is what I'd really like to get after with you for the next few minutes. If you look at verse 29, our text reads this way. For it's been granted to you. Okay? Now, literally, <clears throat> what, what Paul is writing here is something more like this. It's been graced to you. 
Okay? He actually uses the word grace here. It's been graced to you. Now finish the line. Not only to believe, but to suffer. It's been graced to you not only to believe, but to suffer. Now, think about that. Have you ever thought about suffering as a grace? The gift of God's grace. I mean, I thought grace had to do with the free gift of salvation, right? That, that God gives me the work of Jesus Christ, the righteousness of Jesus Christ as a free gift. All I have to do is accept it. That's what grace is all about. I never thought it had anything to do with suffering. But see, this is where we have to be clear, and that is that in Paul's mind, grace has to do with every part of our salvation. Okay? Grace is not just about receiving salvation, but it's about continuing to live in that salvation. It's about persevering in that salvation. And it's also grace, or by grace, that we are assured of our salvation, that we live confidently in the knowledge that we are indeed God's people. That's all by grace. And God gives us grace in various forms to keep us encouraged, to keep us assured, to keep us hopeful, to keep us moving, right? We find His grace in the form of His Word, gives us his word he gives us prayer he gives us the sacraments he gives us his spirit all of these things are meant to bond us more securely to christ and assure us more and more that we shall be his forever now if you think about those things as means of grace add to that the grace of suffering add to that the grace of suffering And actually, we're partners in this grace. In verse 30, Paul says that the Philippians are going through the very same struggle that he is. Now, you read, or John read about Paul's struggle, right? He's in prison. He's in chains. He's suffering. And now he says, you Philippians are going through the very same thing. So things are changing in Philippi. Right? It's not an easy situation for these believers as well. They are partners in Paul's suffering. Paul is a partner with Jesus in Jesus' suffering. The Philippians are partners with Paul. Jesus suffers. Paul suffers. The Philippians suffer. They're all in this together. They're sharers in the suffering. But here's the question. What about us? Are we partners in this grace? Are we partners in this grace? Or do we think we can pretty much get through life without this grace? Verse 29, once more. It's been graced to you not only to believe, but to suffer. Have we taken advantage of both of those graces? Remember how hot it was just a few weeks ago? I was having a, a conversation with a, with a couple of guys. Um, one of them lays foundations for homes for a living. And he got to talking about how hot it is inside of these holes, right? He says, there's no air movement whatsoever. The sun is just beating down on you. You have no place to run, no place to hide. You're just stuck. 
The other one was an auto mechanic, and he was telling me how, yeah, cars come in, and, uh, you know, they're burning hot to begin with because they've been running, and because it's so hot outside, they just don't cool down. And so, and so you're changing starters and alternators, and you're burning your arms on the engines and all that kind of stuff. He said, it's just miserable. And they looked at me. <clears throat> I had nothing to say. <laughs> you know, I could have said, well, yeah, it's really hot when I run from my car to my office. You know, air conditioning in both places, it's, it's tough, tough duty, but somebody's got to do it. I knew the heat at one level. I understood what they were talking about. But I didn't suffer it like they did. Jesus suffered. For us. Paul suffered. The Philippians suffered. What about us? When you look at your life as a Christian, okay, whenever that began, how would you say it's been? How would you characterize it? Would you characterize it as burning your arms on that hot engine every day, or would you characterize it as you know, working in an air-conditioned office. What's it really been like for you? I would have to say my life has been most of the latter. And so I, ha I have to ask a follow-up question, and that is, how did I get the air-conditioned office kind of life? Um, was it a gift from God? Was God saying, you know, for you, Pete, you can have the air-conditioned office. All of your fellow believers, well, they're going to be in the hole laying foundations. Was it a gift of God or was it a gift to myself? That's a, a question we need to ask. Paul says in verse 28, when he's talking about what it means to live as a citizen of, of heaven, he says, don't be frightened or, or don't be intimidated by those who oppose you. And, and what he's saying here is, no, you, you should be willing to suffer. As you stand firm, as you continue striving to advance the gospel in those things, you should be willing to suffer so that these things are accomplished. So don't be frightened. What happens when we are frightened? How does that show itself? when we're intimidated by those who oppose the gospel? How does that reveal itself? Well, I think in two ways. There are two responses that we have generally to fright, okay? Um, one is we run. And, and in this context, our running basically means that we accommodate the message of the gospel to our culture. We sand off any kind of rough edges that are there that might not appeal to the people around us Really, so they won't get mad at us, right? So we basically say, well, this is the gospel, but if any part of it offends you, then let's just take that part off and we'll be okay. So we run. The other response is when we're afraid, we, we fight. We lash out. And we sort of get angry at the world because it's not treating us more hospitably. 
It's not accommodating us. It's not being as friendly to us as we would like. And so we get really angry and we try to change the world so that it suits us better, so that it's more accommodating of us. In each case, though, in each of those reactions, what we're trying to do is basically make the suffering go away, right? Just take it away. And it's understandable. Nobody wants to suffer. Compare that for a moment to how Paul handled suffering that came his way. You heard the text this morning. Paul's in prison. He's actually in change. He doesn't seem too bothered by it, does he? I mean, some of the things he says, right? He says, well, I know that ultimately this, this is serving to advance the gospel. So I guess we'll just put up with it. Paul seemed to go through suffering with kind of a cool confidence, right? And this is where that phrase comes in. For me, to live is Christ, to die is gain. You know, whatever, whatever Christ wants to bring my way, I'm, I'm okay with that. Where does that kind of cool confidence come from? How can he be so calm? Well, I think it comes from his citizenship, his citizenship. Think about that for a moment. Let's just think about his Roman citizenship first, okay? If you go back to Acts 16 and you read the story of, of the gospel coming to Philippi, it's, it's a fascinating story, right? Part of it includes this chain of events that, that Paul sets in motion. He and, and Silas and others, they're, they're, they're proclaiming the gospel in Philippi, and there's this slave girl who's possessed by a demon, and she's following them everywhere they go. And, and she's shouting the whole time, These are servants of the Most High God. These are servants of the Most High God. These are, are servants of the Most High God. And it doesn't just go on for a little while. It goes on for days. And, and Paul, he's got to have remarkable patience, but finally he turns around and he casts the demon out of the woman. All right? Now that set off the chain of events because she was a slave girl and obviously... I don't know how, but she made a lot of money for her master. And, and what Paul had done when he cast the demon out of her was he hit the master right in the wallet, right where it hurts. And so he had Paul thrown into prison, flogged, thrown into prison. He's in a Philippian jail, and then you get the whole story. You know, you think he would be bemoaning his situation, but no, he and Silas are singing hymns in the middle of the night. And then God shakes the prison foundations and the, 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 um, the doors burst open and then the Philippian jailer comes in and he thinks, oh no, everybody's escaped and he's about to kill himself. And then Paul says, hey, you know, hold on, we're here. Um, we haven't gone anywhere. And that leads to the Philippian jailer's conversion and then his whole family is baptized and then you think, well, that's probably the end of the story, right? No. Because then you get word from the higher-ups in Philippi, and, and they send word down, okay, you know, I think we've taught Paul a lesson now. You can release him from jail. And so the jailer brings the message, and Paul says, wait a minute. Wait a minute. And he says, I'm a Roman citizen. You don't treat Roman citizens like this. You don't flog them. You don't throw them in jail without a trial. And what is he doing? He's saying, look, you're going to have to answer to Caesar. 
to the one who gave me my citizenship. You're going to have to answer for your behavior. And Paul, Paul has this confidence about him as he is proclaiming the gospel that he is this Roman citizen. It's kind of like being a little kid in school in third grade. You go out on the playground, you're not afraid of anything because you've got a big brother who's the biggest kid in the school. Right? You don't care what comes your way because you know they're going to have to deal with your brother in the end. Now, Paul, believe it or not, has that confidence in his Roman citizenship, but he has even more confidence in his heavenly citizenship. He never forgets that first and foremost, he's a citizen of heaven. And anyone who has a dispute with him one day is going to have to answer to the Lord of his citizenship. It's what we talked about last week. On the day of Christ, Paul knew that he would be acknowledged on that day as a true citizen of heaven, that he would stand with Jesus who would be the victor. And all of his opponents would have to give account for themselves. Paul was sure, certain of his citizenship in heaven. And that allowed him not to run. It allowed him to live out the gospel where he was. And that citizenship was not just a place, right? It's not just, well, you're a citizen of the place of heaven. It's a person. It's Jesus. I mean, Paul is saying, Jesus is here with me all the time. That's what this citizenship is about, to live his Christ. And now Paul looks at us and he says, well, you've been given the same grace. We're partners in this. You've been given this same grace. Same grace that leads to this confession, to live as Christ. You don't have to run from opposition. You don't have to lash out in anger to opposition. You know how the story ends. So, the grace is available. It's there. Do we receive it? Do we stop running? Do we stop angrily trying to change the world? Paul never let his Roman citizenship trump his heavenly citizenship. He always remembered where his ultimate citizenship was. That's what he was loyal to. Can we say the same thing about us, about ourselves? Just think for a moment how our American citizenship has shaped us over the years. Okay? Not only do you and I not suffer for our faith, we actually have all sorts of perks because of our faith. Um, the church is one of the few organizations that doesn't have to pay property taxes. Okay? We, we own all this property, the buildings, the whole corner, this plat of land. We don't pay property taxes. It's pretty nice. 
And when we receive offerings, we don't, we don't pay income tax on any of that stuff. And when we give of our offerings, right, when we give of our offerings to support the work of Christ, we actually get a deduction, a tax deduction for what we've given. And in fact, we've come to expect that, haven't we? And we get angry if somebody suggests that they're going to take that away or it should be taken away. We've become entitled, you might say. This is what we deserve. Scott Jose reminds us that there are more subtle things that we feel entitled to. He says, in the past, you know, the American church has never really had to make hard decisions in the public square in terms of how to live faithfully in a pluralistic society. We've always been the majority. We've always had it our way. But now we don't so much, do we? How do we handle that? Now that we have opponents... Do we handle those kinds of things with a cool confidence? Unshaken even by the threat of suffering. As a sign that that our opponents, they've already lost. Are we buoyed by our faith that Jesus Christ cannot be defeated? He will not be defeated. And so we can actually respond with grace rather than lashing out and anger kind of like a spoiled child who's told no you can't eat your dessert first how do we respond are we willing to accept the grace of suffering or are we so far on the other side of the spectrum that we don't even recognize when God is making his grace available to us. You know, I just want to close with with one thought here. Um, We're called to strive for the faith, to advance the gospel as one person. Verse 28 says that when we live in this kind of confidence, this confidence that, that really we're victors, Verse 28 says that that will be a sign to our opponents that they will be destroyed. Okay? Living in that kind of confidence will be a sign to our opponents that they will be destroyed. And I just want to ask, do you think they actually have any knowledge of that? I mean, is that a conscious sort of thing? That when they see the church in some way, shape, or form, they're reminded of the fact that, that Christ is victor, that they will be destroyed. The word there is actually, you know, it, it's destroyed, destruction, it's death, it's perdition. Our very faithful presence can be seen as a threat to folks in this world. People take one look at Christians their first, their first reaction might be adversarial. They're threatened. Now think about that. If that's how the church is perceived, does it help the cause of the gospel to be combative? 
Does it help the cause of the gospel to begin with criticism first? To call people names? To shout instead of listen? Friends, we have to be aware, I guess is what I'm saying, we have to be aware of how we are perceived. How we are perceived. That's our our responsibility. That's on us. Just give you one final illustration. Um, Had some car issues not too long ago. Now, I'm kind of a, you know, a goofball mechanic and so driving the car, I can hear certain things that aren't right. Um, but I couldn't figure this one out. So I went and got my mechanic, and, and he drove the car with me, and he started picking out all sorts of things that I didn't even notice. And he knew kind of what would cause that sound or that malfunction. So you think about that. He's just got a little more knowledge of cars, actually much more knowledge than I have, but now think about the designer of the car, the person who created it, the person who made it. You would expect that person to kind of be sensitive to every little thing that could go wrong. Think of Jesus in that regard. The Son of God. He's our creator. He's the one who formed us, who designed us. Now, in a, in a moral sense, think of how attuned Jesus would be to how our lives should go and how every little thing that's not right, that's going in a different direction, how, how aware of those things he must be. When he walked on this earth, think about all the things, all the sin that he saw that most of us aren't even aware of But he knew every bit of it, every intimate detail. And yet, when you think about his life, he didn't spend his whole life criticizing people, shaming people, yelling at people, telling them to pull their lives together. He listened to people. He loved people. He healed people. Paul wrote, we looked at this verse last week, his prayer, that our love might abound more and more in knowledge and depth of insight so that you may be able to discern what is best That was Jesus. He had that depth of insight. He knew everything, but he knew best how to approach the world in love. Also in truth. Right? He stood firm. He didn't back down. That was Jesus. That's Paul's prayer for us. Let's offer up our own prayer now. Lord Jesus, you have made us partners in the gospel and partners in your grace. Forgive us, Lord, when we refuse to accept the suffering that you've called us to accept. 
Lord, forgive us when we forget that we are the victors, that we don't have anything to fear. Forgive us when we allow any other citizenship, any other loyalties come before our citizenship in heaven. Forgive us when we respond in any other way, when we run, when we fight. Forgive us. Make us more patient. Make us more loving. Make us people who listen so that when it's time to share the truth, others will listen to us. This is our prayer in Jesus' great name. Amen.